Chapter 5, Part 3 of The Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter 5, The Lamp of Life, Part 3. 16. It might have been thought that, by this plan, enough variety had been secured, but the builder was not satisfied even thus. For, and this is the point bearing on the present part of our subject, always calling the central arch A and the lateral ones B and C in succession, the northern B and C are considerably wider than the southern B and C, but the southern D is as much wider than the northern D, and lower beneath its cornice besides. And more than this, I hardly believe that one of the effectively symmetrical members of the façade is actually symmetrical with any other. I regret that I cannot state the actual measures. I gave up the taking of them upon the spot, owing to their excessive complexity, and the embarrassment caused by the yielding and subsidence of the arches. Do not let it be supposed that I imagine the Byzantine workmen to have had these various principles in their minds as they built. I believe they built altogether from feeling, and that it was because they did so that there is this marvellous life, changefulness, and subtlety running through their every arrangement, and that we reason upon the lovely building as we should upon some fair growth of the trees of the earth that know not their own beauty. 17. Perhaps, however, a stranger instance than any I have yet given of the daring variation of pretended symmetry is found in the front of the Cathedral of Bayeux. It consists of five arches with steep pediments, the outermost filled, the three central with doors. And they appear at first to diminish in regular proportion from the principal one in the centre. The two lateral doors are very curiously managed. The tympana of their arches are filled with bas-reliefs in four tiers. In the lowest tier, there is in each a little temple or gate containing the principal figure. In that on the right, it is the gate of Hades with Lucifer. This little temple is carried like a capital by an isolated shaft which divides the whole arch at about two-thirds of its breadth, the larger portion outermost. And in that larger portion is the inner entrance door. This exact correspondence in the treatment of both gates might lead us to expect a correspondence in dimension. Not at all. The small inner northern entrance measures an English feet and inches, four feet seven inches from jam to jam, and the southern five feet exactly. Five inches in five feet is a considerable variation. The outer northern porch measures from face shaft to face shaft thirteen feet eleven inches, and the southern 14 feet 6 inches, giving a difference of 7 inches on 14 and a half feet. There are also variations in the pediment decorations not less extraordinary. 18. I imagine I have given instances enough, though I could multiply them indefinitely, to prove that these variations are not mere blunders, nor carelessnesses, but the result of a fixed scorn, if not dislike, of accuracy in measurements and in most cases, I believe, of a determined resolution 
to work out an effective symmetry by variations as subtle as those of nature. To what lengths this principle was sometimes carried, we shall see by the very singular management of the towers of Aveville. I do not say it is right, still less that it is wrong, but it is a wonderful proof of the fearlessness of a living architecture. For, say what we will of it, that flamboyant of France, however morbid, was as vivid and intense in its animation as ever any phase of mortal mind. And it would have lived till now if it had not taken to telling lies. I have before noticed the general difficulty of managing even lateral division when it is into two equal parts, unless there be some third reconciling member. I shall give hereafter more examples of the modes in which this reconciliation is effected in towers with double lights. The Abbeville architect put his sword to the knot perhaps rather too sharply. Vexed by the want of unity between his two windows, he literally laid their heads together, and so distorted their ogy curves, as to leave only one of the trefoiled panels above, on the inner side, and three on the outer side of each arch. The arrangement is given in plate 12, figure 3. Associated with the various undulation of flamboyant curves below, it is in the real tower hardly observed, while it binds it into one mass in general effect. Granting it, however, to be ugly and wrong, I like sins of the kind, for the sake of the courage it requires to commit them. In plate 2, part of a small chapel attached to the west front of the Cathedral of St. Lo, the reader will see an instance, from the same architecture, of a violation of its own principles for the sake of a peculiar meaning. If there be any one feature which the flamboyant architect loved to decorate richly, it was the niche. It was what the capital is to the Corinthian order. Yet in the case before us there is an ugly beehive put in the place of the principal niche of the arch. I am not sure if I am right in my interpretation of its meaning, but I have little doubt that two figures below, now broken away, once represented an Annunciation, and on another part of the same cathedral I find the descent of the Spirit, encompassed by rays of light, represented very nearly in the form of the niche in question, which appears, therefore, to be intended for a representation of this effulgence, while at the same time it was made a canopy for the delicate figures below. Whether this was its meaning or not, it is remarkable as a daring departure from the common habits of the time. 19. Far more splendid is a license taken with the niche decoration of the portal of Saint-Maclou at Rouen. The subject of the tympanum bas-relief is the Last Judgment, and the sculpture of the Inferno side is carried out with a degree of power whose fearful grotesqueness I can only describe as a mingling of the minds of Orcagna and Hogarth. The demons are perhaps even more awful than Orcagna's, and, in some of the expressions of debased humanity in its utmost despair, the English painter is at least equalled. Not less wild is the imagination which gives fury and fear even to the placing of the figures. An evil angel, poised on the wing, drives the condemned troops from before the judgment seat. With his left hand he drags behind him a cloud which is spreading like a winding sheet over them all. But they are urged by him so furiously that they are driven not merely to the extreme limit of the scene, 
which the sculptor can find elsewhere within the tympanum, but out of the tympanum and into the niches of the arch, while the flames that follow them, bent by the blast, as it seems of the angel's wings, rush into the niches also and burst up through their tracery, the three lowermost niches being represented as all on fire, while instead of their usual vaulted and ribbed ceiling, there is a demon in the roof of each, with his wings folded over it, grinning down out of the black shadow. 20. I have, however, given enough instances of vitality shown in mere daring, whether wise, as surely in this last instance, or inexpedient. But, as a single example of the vitality of assimilation, the faculty which turns to its purposes all material that is submitted to it, I would refer the reader to the extraordinary columns of the arcade on the south side of the cathedral of Ferrara. A single arch of it is given in plate 13 on the right. Four such columns forming a group, there are interposed two pairs of columns as seen on the left of the same plate, and then come another four arches. It is a long arcade of, I suppose, not less than forty arches, perhaps of many more, and in the grace and simplicity of its stilted Byzantine curves I hardly know its equal. Its like in fancy of column I certainly do not know, there being hardly two correspondent, and the architect having been ready, as it seems, to adopt ideas and resemblances from any sources whatsoever. The vegetation growing up the two columns is fine, though bizarre. The distorted pillars beside it suggest images of less agreeable character. The serpentine arrangements founded on the usual Byzantine double knot are generally graceful, but I was puzzled to account for the excessively ugly type of the pillar, figure three, one of a group of four. It so happened, fortunately for me, that there had been a fair in Ferrara, and when I had finished my sketch of the pillar, I had to get out of the way of some merchants of miscellaneous wares who were removing their stall. It had been shaded by an awning supported by poles, which, in order that the covering might be raised or lowered according to the height of the sun, were composed of two separate pieces, fitted to each other by a rack, in which I beheld the prototype of my ugly pillar. It will not be thought, after what I have above said of the inexpedience of imitating anything but natural form, that I advance this architect's practice as altogether exemplary. Yet the humility is instructive, which condescended to such sources for motives of thought, the boldness which could depart so far from all established types of form, and the life and feeling which out of an assemblage of such quaint and uncouth materials could produce an harmonious piece of ecclesiastical architecture. 21. I have dwelt, however, perhaps too long upon that form of vitality which is known almost as much by its errors as by its atonements for them. We must briefly note the operation of it which is always right and always necessary upon those lesser details, where it can neither be superseded by precedence nor repressed by proprieties. I said early in this essay that handwork might always be known from machine work, observing, however, at the same time, that it was possible for men to turn themselves into machines, and to reduce their labor to the machine level. But so long as men work as men, putting their heart into what they do, 
and doing their best, it matters not how bad workmen they may be, there will be that in the handling which is above all price. It will be plainly seen that some places have been delighted in more than others, that there has been a pause and a care about them, and then there will come careless bits and fast bits, and here the chisel will have struck hard, and there lightly and anon timidly. And if the man's mind as well as his heart went with his work, all this will be in the right places, and each part will set off the other. And the effect of the whole, as compared with the same design cut by a machine or a lifeless hand, will be like that of poetry well read and deeply felt, to that of the same verses jangled by rote. There are many to whom the difference is imperceptible, but to those who love poetry it is everything. They had rather not hear it at all than hear it ill-read. And to those who love architecture, the life and accent of the hand are everything. They had rather not have ornament at all than see it ill-cut. Deadly cut, that is. I cannot too often repeat, it is not coarse cutting, it is not blunt cutting that is necessarily bad, but it is cold cutting, the look of equal trouble everywhere, the smooth, diffused tranquillity of heartless pains, the regularity of a plough in a level field. The chill is more likely indeed to show itself in finished work than in any other. Men cool and tire as they complete, and if completeness is thought to be vested in polish, and to be attainable by help of sandpaper, we may as well give the work to the engine lathe at once. But right finish is simply the full rendering of the intended impression, and high finish is the rendering of a well-intended and vivid impression, and it is oftener got by rough than fine handling. I am not sure whether it is frequently enough observed that sculpture is not the mere cutting of the form of anything in stone. It is the cutting of the effect of it. Very often the true form in the marble would not be in the least like itself. The sculptor must paint with his chisel. Half his touches are not to realize, but to put power into the form. They are touches of light and shadow, and raise a ridge or sink a hollow, not to represent an actual ridge or hollow, but to get a line of light or a spot of darkness. In a coarse way, this kind of execution is very marked in old French woodwork, the irises of the eyes of its chimeric monsters being cut boldly into holes, which variously placed and always dark give all kinds of strange and startling expressions, averted and askance to the fantastic countenances. Perhaps the highest examples of this kind of sculpture painting are the works of Mino da Fiesole, their best effects being reached by strange, angular, and seemingly rude touches of the chisel. The lips of one of the children of the tombs in the church of the Badia appear only half finished when they are seen close, yet the expression is farther carried and more ineffable than in any piece of marble I have ever seen especially considering its delicacy and the softness of the child features. In a sterner kind, that of the statues in the sacristy of St. Lorenzo equals it, and there again by incompletion. 
I know no example of work in which the forms are absolutely true and complete where such a result is attained. In Greek sculptures it is not even attempted. 22. It is evident that for architectural appliances such masculine handling, likely as it must be to retain its effectiveness when higher finish would be injured by time, must always be the most expedient. And as it is impossible, even were it desirable, that the highest finish should be given to the quantity of work which covers a large building, it will be understood how precious the intelligence must become which renders incompletion itself a means of additional expression, and how great must be the difference, when the touches are rude and few between those of a careless and those of a regardful mind. It is not easy to retain anything of their character in a copy, yet the reader will find one or two illustrative points in the examples given in plate 14, from the bas-reliefs of the north of Rouen Cathedral. There are three square pedestals under the three main niches on each side of it, and one in the centre, each of these being on two sides decorated with five quatrefoiled panels. There are thus seventy quatrefoils in the lower ornament of the gate alone, without counting those of the outer course round it and of the pedestals outside. Each quatrefoil is filled with a bas-relief, the whole reaching to something above a man's height. A modern architect would, of course, have made all the five quatrefoils of each pedestal side equal. Not so the medieval. The general form being apparently a quatrefoil composed of semicircles on the sides of a square, it will be found on examination that none of the arcs are semicircles, and none of the basic figures squares. The latter are rhomboids, having their acute or obtuse angles uppermost according to their larger or smaller size, and the arcs upon their sides slide into such places as they can get in the angles of the enclosing parallelogram, leaving intervals at each of the four angles of various shapes, which are filled each by an animal. The size of the whole panel being thus varied, the two lowest of the five are tall, the next two short, and the uppermost a little higher than the lowest, while in the course of bas-reliefs which surrounds the gate, calling either of the two lowest, which are equal, A, and either of the next two, B, and the fifth and sixths, C and D, then D, the largest, is to C, as C is to A, and as A is to B. It is wonderful how much of the grace of the whole depends on these variations. 23. Each of the angles, it was said, is filled by an animal. There are thus 70 times 4 equals 280 animals, all different in the mere fillings of the intervals of the bas-reliefs. Three of these intervals, with their beasts, actual size, the curves being traced upon the stone, I have given in plate 14. I say nothing of their general design, or of the lines of the wings and scales, which are perhaps, unless in those of the central dragon, not much above the usual commonplaces of good ornamental work. But there is an evidence in the features of thoughtfulness and fancy which is not common, at least nowadays. The upper creature on the left is biting something, the form of which is hardly traceable in the defaced stone, but biting he is, 
and the reader cannot but recognize in the peculiarly reverted eye the expression which is never seen, as I think, but in the eye of a dog gnawing something in jest, and preparing to start away with it. The meaning of the glance, so far as it can be marked by the mere incision of the chisel, will be felt by comparing it with the eye of the couchant figure on the right, in its gloomy and angry brooding. The plan of this head and the nod of the cap over its brow are fine, but there is a little touch above the hand especially well meant. The fellow is vexed and puzzled in his malice, and his hand is pressed hard on his cheekbone, and the flesh of the cheek is wrinkled under the eye by the pressure. The whole, indeed, looks wretchedly coarse when it is seen on a scale in which it is naturally compared with delicate figure etchings. But considering it as a mere filling of an interstice on the outside of a cathedral gate, and as one of more than three hundred, for in my estimate I did not include the outer pedestals, it proves very noble vitality in the art of the time. 24. I believe the right question to ask respecting all ornament is simply this. Was it done with enjoyment? Was the carver happy while he was about it? It may be the hardest work possible, and the harder because so much pleasure was taken in it, but it must have been happy too, or it will not be living. How much of the stonemason's toil this condition would exclude, I hardly venture to consider, but the condition is absolute. There is a Gothic church lately built near Rouen, vile enough indeed in its general composition, but excessively rich in detail. Many of the details are designed with taste, and all, evidently, by a man who has studied old work closely. But it is all as dead as leaves in December. There is not one tender touch, not one warm stroke on the whole façade. The men who did it hated it, and were thankful when it was done. And so long as they do so, they are merely loading your walls with shapes of clay. The garlands of everlastings in Père Lachaise are more cheerful ornaments. You cannot get the feeling by paying for it. Money will not buy life. I am not sure even that you can get it by watching or waiting for it. It is true that here and there a workman may be found who has it in him, but he does not rest contented in the inferior work. He struggles forward into an academician, and from the mass of available handicraftsmen the power is gone. How recoverable I know not. This only I know. That all expense devoted to sculptural ornament in the present condition of that power comes literally under the head of sacrifice for the sacrifice's sake, or worse. I believe the only manner of rich ornament that is open to us is the geometrical color mosaic, and that much might result from our strenuously taking up this mode of design. But, at all events, one thing we have in our power, the doing without machine ornament and cast-iron work. All the stamped metals and artificial stones and imitation woods and bronzes, over the invention of which we hear daily exultation, all the short and cheap and easy ways of doing that whose difficulty is its honour, are just so many new obstacles in our already encumbered road. They will not make one of us happier or wiser. They will extend neither the pride of judgment nor the privilege of enjoyment. 
they will only make us shallower in our understandings, colder in our hearts, and feebler in our wits. And most justly, for we are not sent into this world to do anything into which we cannot put our hearts. We have certain work to do for our bread, and that is to be done strenuously, other work to do for our delight, and that is to be done heartily. Neither is to be done by halves or shifts, but with a will, and what is not worth this effort is not to be done at all. Perhaps all that we have to do is meant for nothing more than an exercise of the heart and of the will, and is useless in itself, but at all events the little use it has may well be spared if it is not worth putting our hands and our strength to. It does not become our immortality to take an ease inconsistent with its authority, nor to suffer any instruments with which it can dispense to come between it and the thing it rules. And he who would form the creations of his own mind by any other instrument than his own hand would also, if he might, give grinding organs to heaven's angels to make their music easier. There is dreaming enough and earthiness enough, and sensuality enough, in human existence, without our turning the few glowing moments of it into mechanism. And since our life must, at the best, be but a vapour that appears for a little time, and then vanishes away, let it at least appear as a cloud in the height of heaven, not as the thick darkness that broods over the blast of the furnace and rolling of the wheel. End of chapter 5, part 3 Recording by Todd Albrecht